You're listening to Radio Maria, Christian Voice in your home. Right now, person in the soul, Jesus the promised Messiah of Judaism, but Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates a fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Um, I'm very happy to be back live. I just came back from a two-week pilgrimage to the Holy Land that I led with a small group of pilgrims, which was incredibly, incredibly blessed. And I still feel very uh, privileged and blessed to have been able to participate in the pilgrimage and even to lead it. And um, so I, uh, in that light, I, I apologize for the fact that... Um, there had to be a couple of rebroadcasts in the recent past while I was away, but I'm back live. And, of course, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y, if you wish to call in during the show with a question or a comment. I'd be more than happy to um, to take your call. And... Um, uh, if you recall, if you were listening a few weeks ago, I actually spent two shows in the recent past reading from a Catholic philosopher, Jacques Maritain, from uh, the first half of the 20th century, who was very involved with what was called then the Jewish question. Uh, he, in fact, his, his wife was a Jewess. Uh, he was at the time, I believe, a, a Protestant when he met her. And they were desperate to know the truth and desperate to know the meaning of life. They met as university undergraduates, and they took a pact that they would, it was actually a suicide pact, that they would um, commit suicide a year later if they hadn't found the meaning of life. And fortunately, they did find the meaning of life in the fullness of the relationship with God and the fullness of the truth, which is found in the Catholic Church. They were brought into the Catholic Church in part through uh, meeting and getting to know and the influence of a, another fervent French Catholic at the time, uh, Leon Blois. Uh, anyway, so um, uh, I had read um, a few weeks ago, I had read and discussed some passages from one of Jacques Maritain's books, uh, Christian Looks at the Jewish Question. And since then, I came across a, another one of his books, which is on the letters of St. Paul. It's called The Living Thoughts of St. Paul, presented by Jacques Maritain. And again, it revolves around the relationship between Judaism, well, between Jew and Gentile in the church, is the easiest way to put it. Um, what it is, is it's a deep exegesis of the letters of St. Paul and explains what St. Paul is saying about the relationship between Judaism and the Catholic faith. So I thought that today I would uh, continue, so to speak, with um, reading Jacques Maritain. I'll be reading today from this book on St. Paul by Jacques Maritain. And, of course, as I usually do, interrupting myself to discuss what is being said Um it can't help endearing itself to me that this book that is because the very first the very first sentence of the book is quote salvation is from the jews close quote which of course is the um, quote of jesus that i took for the title of my first book salvation is from the jews so with that let me read jacques maritain's um, book on saint paul's discussion of the role of jew and gentile in the church salvation is from the jews it is from Israel that came forth the Savior of the world. It is in the womb of a young Jewish girl, the only absolutely pure creature among all purely human creatures, that the word through whom all has been made took on human flesh. Only to be greeted at once with the first pogrom of the Christian era, the massacre of the little Jewish innocents among whom King Herod sought gropingly to strike down their king, and no sooner was he born than he was carried off along the highways by Joseph and Mary. Who are these but an indigent family of minor artisans, penniless, without affidavits, without visas, 
the first Jewish refugees of the Christian era with their poor, tired donkey. At the instance in the history of the world when the second person of the Trinity is sent, he has always to begin by hiding among those who cannot recognize him. It is from Israel that came forth the Savior of the world. The apostles were Jews. The two greatest leaders of souls that the history of humanity has ever known, Moses and Paul, were Jews. Both of them spoke with God. Both were men troubled by infirmity, were weak and trembled at their terrible mission. Moses was slow of speech. Paul was buffeted by an illness which humiliated him. They both appear to us as stamped with an awful majesty, but they were both vagabonds along the roadsides. And Moses was meek above all men, and Paul supported, with a tenderness tearing at his heartstrings, the first faithful of the infant church as his, quote, little children, close quote. The one and the other were persecuted and abandoned. And since Paul was to be of a pattern with Christ, he was stoned, imprisoned, then martyred. Moses transmitted to Israel the tables of the law. Paul, by the sword of the word which was entrusted to him, taught the universal church, quote, the church made of Jews and Gentiles, close quote, spiritual Israel, that it was, quote, through the law, dead to the law, close quote, in order that it might live to God. This is the essence of Paul's mission. That is its central importance in human history. It is through him, and owing to the inspiration he received to this effect, that Christianity became conscious of its liberty from Judaism, of its pure universality. There was a capital event, the greatest in all the history of souls and of civilization. It was necessary to understand that the Son of Man had not come only for the Jew, but for man, for the human race in its entire unity. It was necessary to understand that the Messiah of the Jewish people had not come only for the Jewish people, but for all the nations of the earth. It was necessary to understand that in saving by his blood men of all the nations of the world, he did not ask them to make themselves Jews or Judaizers in order to become Christians, but on the contrary made of them his own true Israelites, in spirit and in truth, his people, circumcised at heart, not in the flesh, to which those who came out of circumcision and those who came out of non-circumcision were equally called to belong. It was necessary to understand that the church, or the kingdom of God journeying here below, the kingdom of redemption carried on from generation to generation, was neither a Jewish sect nor a religious extension of the theocracy of Israel over all the peoples of the earth, but rather a universal body, newly brought to life in its visible reality by the invisible power of the blood of Christ and the Spirit of God, and all that precisely at the cost of the earthly kingdom of which Israel was thenceforth deprived. It was necessary to understand that this extraordinary break whereby from out of the temple, broken, dispossessed, falling in ruins to the earth, was to arise and become separate the spiritual Israel, the mystical temple of the body of Christ, was itself conditioned by the misstep of Israel and the great misfeasance of its priests. It was necessary to understand that if salvation is for all men, and if in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, it is because the power which works salvation is not the law of the Jews, but faith in him who was crucified in the name of this law. So let me go back and unpack this a little, although I do think that um, Jacques Maritain himself is actually doing a, a beautiful job unpacking St. Paul. But as I said, he starts out saying salvation is from the Jews, it is from Israel that came forth the Savior of the world in the womb of a young Jewish girl, and so forth. And of course, we know that all of the apostles were Jews, and all of the early disciples were Jews, and the first 3,000 who entered the church on the first Pentecost were all Jews, and so forth. It is, of course, obvious that the church 
sprang from, one could say, the heart of Judaism and was initially populated entirely by Jews and, of course, led, so to speak, by the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the Jew Jesus of Nazareth. So, given that, it was obviously uh, appeared at the time that the church, since it sprang from Judaism, was composed of Jews and was the fruit of the work of a Jew Jesus, it, it appeared to be a sect of Judaism or certainly an outgrowth of Judaism. And in fact, the burning question of the day in the very early church was, is the church only for Jews or is it meant for the whole world? This, in fact, caused the first uh, crisis in the early church. It caused the first ecumenical council, the first uh, church council, which is known as the Council of Jerusalem in about 51 AD. It's described in the book of Acts. I believe it's in Acts 15. All of the apostles were called back to Jerusalem for the first church council to decide the thorny issue which was in danger of crippling the early church. And what was that issue? That issue was, are we allowed to let Gentiles, that is non-Jews, into the church, or is membership in the church to be restricted to Jews, and therefore, if a Gentile should wish to enter the church, must he or she first become a Jew according to Jewish law before they can apply for membership, so to speak, in the church. Um, This was the burning error of the day, the burning issue of the day. Of course, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, it was decided that, in fact, one did not have to be a Jew to enter the church, and a Gentile could enter the church without going through conversion to Judaism. Um, And this, of course, opened the doors for the entire Gentile world to enter the church. As a small aside, let me point out that for a man to convert to Judaism would have required circumcision, which would have been, uh, if you excuse the pun, would have had a crippling effect on the early church, would have been a huge impediment to the church spreading. Anyway, what Maritain is pointing out in this uh, short chapter is that it is thanks to St. Paul that we have the theology fully exposed, expounded, I should say, the the relationship between the old law and the new law, the relationship between salvation, in quotes, through the law, and salvation through Jesus Christ, the relationship between the um, physical Israel, so to speak, the children of Abraham, and the spiritual Israel, that is the entire church, uh, brought into spiritual sonship of Abraham through the uh, being members of the body of Christ. And that entire dynamic of the transformation of Judaism, uh, which belonged in a sense to the ethnic group known as the Jews, the children of Abraham, the entire transformation of Judaism into the universal Catholic Church for all of mankind, all of that theology uh, uh, we the exposition of all of that theology we owe to St. Paul. It is in St. Paul's letters and to the letter to the Hebrews, which may or may not have been uh, by St. Paul, but, but most scholars today think it wasn't by St. Paul. But anyway, it's we owe the exposition of that theology to St. Paul and to the epistle to the Hebrews. And so um, Jacques Maritain is, this this entire book, is an exposition of what St. Paul writes about the um, spiritual interaction of pre-Messianic Israel and the post-Messianic Israel, which is the Catholic Church. Um, so I, I don't think I added any clarity, but I, I hope I, I kind of summarize at least what Maritain was doing here. Um, let me just, uh, having said that, Reread a few sentences from him. It was necessary to understand that the Son of Man had come not only for the Jew, but for all of mankind, for the human race in its entire unity. It was necessary to understand that the Messiah of the Jewish people, that is, of course, Jesus, had not come only for the Jewish people, 
but for all the nations of the earth. It was necessary to understand that in saving by his blood men of all the nations of the world, he did not ask them to make themselves Jews in order to become Christians, but on the contrary made of them his own true Israelites, in spirit and in truth, his people, circumcised in the heart, not in the flesh, to which those who came out of circumcision and those who came out of non-circumcision were equally called to belong. It was necessary to understand that if salvation is for all men, and if in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, it is because the power which works salvation is not the law of the Jews, but faith in him who is crucified in the name of that very law. I will continue with this reading now. Um, Hence the great intuition which inflames Paul's mind is the feeling for the universality of the kingdom of God and the feeling of salvation by faith, not by the law. Another intuition, inseparably bound to the former, is that of the primacy of the eternal, excuse me, another intuition, inseparably bound to the former, is that of the primacy of the internal over the external, of the spirit over the letter, of the life of grace over exterior observances. This is the very spirit of the gospel. Paul understood more deeply than anyone else the immense spiritual revolution carried out by Jesus, and which St. Thomas Aquinas illuminates when he shows that because the old law was a written law, what mattered most in it was the external fulfillment of rites and prescriptions. But the new law is primarily and before all else an unwritten law. It is written by God in the hearts of those called to him, and therefore what is primary in it and that in which consists all its power is the grace of the Holy Spirit operating in souls by means of faith and charity. Thenceforth, purity of heart matters more than the purifications of the law, mercy more than the Sabbath. The distinction between the sacred and the profane orders is not abolished, rather it is confirmed. But religion no longer consists, above all, in the envelopment of the profane by an external apparatus of the sacred, in order to subject the former to the law of a god of fear, and in order to protect it against his severity. From here on, religion consists, above all, in the penetration of the profane, as well as of the sacred, by the gifts of internal grace which transmits to souls the very life itself of a god of love. The whole field of action and existence of the human person, in the category of the profane as in the category of the sacred, becomes the field of interior sanctification, and the social function of the sacred is to serve as an instrument for this sanctification, this spiritualization. Now, uh, I'm interrupting this, of course. Um, the last two paragraphs are worthy of uh, an hour of discussion, at least. But let me try to underline some of the key points. Um, the old law, the law that the Jews lived under before the coming of Christ, the law given to them by God through Moses, was a written law. And as a written law, because it was a written law, what mattered most was the external fulfillment of rites and prescriptions. In other words, it was a written law, it was an external law, it was a law made physical by words on paper, and because it was an external, written, physical law, what mattered most was the external, formal prescriptions of that law, obedience to the prescriptions of that law, that is, the external fulfillment of the rights and the commands of that law. However, with the coming of Christ, it was replaced by the new law, which... Um, uh, which is essentially an unwritten law written on the hearts of men uh, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as Merton said, which is above all else an unwritten law written by God in the hearts of those called to him. And since it is primarily an unwritten law and an internal law in the hearts of men, what is primary in it is not external observance, 
but internal observance, observance in the heart, purity of heart, which and it's the purity of heart which now matters under the new law, that is in Christianity, more than the ritual purity, the external purity, because as the new law is an internal law in the heart, purity has become an internal matter in the heart. As the old law was an external written law on tablets of stone, so to speak, purity was an external purity that had to do with ritual purifications. Now, under the old law, the let me see if I can do um, let me see if I can do justice to this. Under the old law, religion consisted in a separation of the profane, that is, of the worldly, of the impure, from from the pure, from the sacred. Um, a, a separation of the profane from the sacred. However, because the new law is an internal law written in our hearts, and, and purity is now a matter of internal purity in our hearts, under the new law, religion doesn't consist, above all else, in the separation of the profane from the sacred, but a penetration of the profane, um, essentially a making of the profane, that is, the worldly sacred, by the gifts of internal grace, which transmits the soul to the soul the very life of God itself, a God of love. In other words, under the new law, we are called to make sacred our worldly life through the internal transformation in our hearts, which is made possible by the presence of God within us. So going back to Maritain, the whole field of action and existence of the human person now, under the new law, in the category of the profane, as in the category of the sacred, becomes the field of interior sanctification. Everything we do in the world now becomes part of the field of interior sanctification. What we do for God is not separate from what we do in the world, but rather everything we do in the world can be done for God, and everything we do in the world can become grist for the mill, so to speak, of our interior sanctification. And so now the social function of the sacred is to serve as an instrument for this sanctification, this spiritualization of the profane, of what we do in the world. And in fact, this, this contrast and this transformation is beautifully expressed by um, Jesus himself, needless to say, in um, in the Sermon on the Mount, so uh, I wasn't planning to say this, so if you uh, bear with me, I hope I can find it in real time here. Um, and uh, uh, I will read G the Sermon on the Mount, which is a beautiful exposition of this transformation of uh, holiness or of the sacred from external observance to purity of heart. Um, and some of this was actually the, the reading at, at Mass today, so it's very appropriate. So I'm reading from Matthew chapter 5, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not suppose that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to complete. I tell you this, so long as heaven and earth endure, not a letter, not a stroke will disappear from the law, until all that must happen has happened. If any man therefore sets aside even the least of the law's demands and teaches others to do the same, he will have the lowest place in the kingdom of heaven. Whereas anyone who keeps the law and teaches others to do so will stand high in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless you show yourselves far better men than the Pharisees and the doctors of the law, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven." You have learned that our forefathers were told, do not commit murder. Anyone who commits murder must be brought to judgment. But what I tell you is this, anyone who nurses anger against his brother must be brought to judgment. If he abuses his brother, he must answer for it to the court. If he sneers at him, he will have to answer for it in the fires of hell. Um, and then further on he says, um, you have learned that they were told, do not commit adultery, but what I tell you is this. If a man looks on a woman with a lustful eye, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
So you see in these two examples this transformation from the external observance of the law to purity of heart, what goes on in the heart of man. In other words, um, under the old law, committing murder was forbidden. But under the new law, it's not just the external action which matters um, and is a matter of sin or of sanctity. It is what's going on in your heart that matters. And so if you nurse anger against your brother in your heart, if you condemn them, there are various trans translations of this, if you sneer at him, if you curse him, you have committed murder in your heart. You have um, the impulse of the heart now is being seen by God and judged by God, not only the external actions. Similarly with lust, it used to be under the old law that if you committed adultery, you committed a great sin. But Jesus is saying, look, if you look at a woman with lust, in your heart or in your eye. You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. It's the internalization of sanctity. It's the internalization of the law. It's the internalization of the relationship between man and God from external action to interior disposition. That is at the heart of the transformation from the old law to the new law and at the heart of the transformation from what a purity and sanctity was under the old law, that is under under Old Testament Judaism to under the new law that is under Christianity. I hope I hope that's clear. Um, this is something, if I can say so, one reason I may sound a little impassioned about this is I recently came across uh, something um, written by a very earnest uh, Jewish woman involved in the interfaith dialogue who claimed that what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount was... Um, I don't want to get too far afield, but was built fences around the observance of the law, which is a concept in Judaism. So that, for instance, although in Judaism it's forbidden to do work on the Sabbath, um, and that's the law from the Old Testament, um, in order to prevent anyone from inadvertently doing work on the Sabbath, Judaism came up with a lot of other restrictions such as uh, you can't light a fire on the Sabbath, you can't walk more than a certain distance, you can't carry more than a certain load, and so forth, to build a fence around the observance of the law to protect people from inadvertently uh, violating the law. And she claimed that that's what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, was build fences around the observance of the law. But if you look at what Jesus said, it's anything but that. It's something very different. It's a fundamental transformation of sanctity from uh, external purity, external observance, to uh, purity of heart. And one of the reasons for that is because the entire nature of the sacred versus the profane change with the coming of Christianity. We weren't to be holy and sacred by being separate from the profane, being separate from worldly pursuits and keeping basically our religion separate from our worldliness, but rather we were to transform our profane, we were to transform our interaction with the world into the sacred through um, through our in interior disposition while interacting with the world, which was made possible by the indwelling God within us, which was only made possible, of course, with the incarnation of God as man, with the um, unification or, or the, the merging together of divine nature and human nature in the person of Jesus, and then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and, in fact, the entire Most Holy Trinity in the human heart in a state of grace and uh, at least according to the rules in a state of grace and in a sacramental union with the sacraments through the the catholic church i hope that was clear um and uh wow anyway as i said at the beginning of the show this is a live call-in show i've already come to the halfway point through our hour and i usually take a short musical break in the halfway point so I will do so. One of the reasons for taking the break is not only so I can calm down and catch my breath, but it's so that listeners have a chance to call in without interruption, without interrupting anything, call in with any comments or questions. And when I come back from the break, it's a very easy time to turn to the call board and take any calls which might come in. So with that, let me invite you to call in if you're so 
moved in order to comment or with a question or whatever. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Um, if you're out of the country, um, the, uh, uh, the studio is on Skype. And the Skype address is something like Radio Maria Alexandria or Radio Maria U.S. Studio. I'm not, I didn't look it up just now, so I'm not 100% sure. But you can always Skype in with a question or a comment. And with that, I will be back in a few moments to continue the show. You're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with your host, Roy Showman. I'll be back in a few moments. Hi, welcome back to Jesus Prom the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church. We're seeing the other way around that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. I have been reading and discussing today from another work of Jacques Maritain, a very prominent Catholic philosopher of the first half of the twentieth century. Um uh, and it's a book of his on the thoughts of St. Paul and on, in particular on our uh, uh, debt of gratitude we owe to St. Paul for his full exposition of exactly what took place in the coming of Christ with respect to the transformation of the old law into the new law, the transformation of Judaism into the Catholic Church and the sacraments. So it is a um, exegesis, it's an exposition and discussion of the theology in St. Paul around the transformation from Judaism into the Catholic Church. And Maritain points out that it is uh, basically only from St. Paul that we know what we know about that transformation. Uh, certainly it's only in St. Paul or from St. Paul that we have in sacred scripture this uh, full and beautiful theological exposition. So I will go back to reading. Uh, the book is called, um, let me get the title right, The Living Thoughts of St. Paul, presented by Jacques Maritain. And as I mentioned at the outset of the show, Jacques Maritain had a very special interest in the Jews and the relationship between Judaism and the Catholic Church, in part because his wife, who was also... Um, uh, no small philosopher and intellectual Raisa Maritain was a Jewish convert. Um, so anyway, back to Maritain on St. Paul and the transformation of the old law into the new law. The letter and all external observance are not suppressed, but from here on out it is realized that they have value only as ordered toward the spirit and vitalized by it. Doubtless they will, by reason of human weakness, keep on struggling against the spirit and wishing to gain the upper hand over the spirit. But the tribulations of the saints and the catastrophes of the world history, the catastrophes, catastrophes of world history, will be the price exacted by the vengeful spirit. The law has not been done away with, not an iota thereof has been erased. But Jesus has realized in its fullness and perfectly accomplished the work for which the law was set up. The ceremonial observances, which were figurative and which foretold the mysteries of salvation, have now come to reality and been consummated in the body of the Messiah and in his sacrifice, and thus they have come to an end, absorbed into the reality which they had foretold and prefigured, so that they now give way to the rites and sacraments of the new law, which transmit and perpetuate that reality. The moral precepts which related to the effective conduct of each man here on earth, as that conduct should terminate in the true last end, have in no sense been abrogated, but their meaning has been profoundly changed. The illusion whereby it was believed that man could, by fulfilling these precepts, constitute himself by himself into a state of justice, natural or legal, that illusion has evaporated. It is by the free gift of himself which God makes us, and by the cross of Christ and by his blood, that man is constituted into a state of justice through grace, ransomed at a great price and without having deserved it. Bound to fulfill, 
and unable by himself to fulfill these moral precepts in their integrity, in view of a so-called wisdom and perfection which he might owe to his own power as a man, he is bound to fulfill them, and can fulfill them in their integrity, in view of a true wisdom and perfection which he will owe to the power of God, through grace which, if only a man does not refuse it, makes of him a new creature, so that what has what he has heretofore done or not done has no common measure with his reception of such a gift. Again, wow, I think that that one paragraph would be, again, worth hours of discussion. Um, you, have, you have the heart of Christianity in it. Um, remember when I, read, when I read from the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus began it by saying, I not literally began it, I, I take that back, but early on in it he said, Do not suppose that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to complete it. I tell you this, so long as heaven and earth endure, not a letter, not a stroke will disappear from the law until all that must happen has happened. So we are left with this puzzle. The Jewish law had a lot of uh, ritual prescriptions. It had a lot of commands for religious rituals, a lot of commands for ritual purification and so forth, which have been done away with, which are no longer in the law that we follow as Christians. But at the same time, Jesus said, no, he didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't, he, what did he say? He said, um, not a letter, not a stroke will disappear from the law. So what is the resolution of this paradox? How can it be that superficially it looks like some things have been removed from the law, but in fact Jesus said not a letter or a stroke will be removed from the law? And Maritain is explaining this through the words of St. Paul, exactly how it happened. The law has not been done away with. Not an iota thereof has been erased. That's, of course, what Jesus said. But Jesus has realized in his fullness and perfectly accomplished the work for which the law was set up. The law was set up to um, enable, in some sense, the purification and the sanctification of man. And that purification and sanctification, which was a very rough approximation that was available under the old law, was perfected by Jesus and made fully available through Jesus. So that very perfection and sanctification, which was the purpose of the old law, was fulfilled and made much more fully available to all of mankind through the work of Jesus and through union with Jesus. Um, the ceremonial observances were which were figurative and which foretold the mysteries of salvation. In other words, the ceremonial observances in Judaism were pictures in advance of the mysteries of salvation. They foretold the mysteries of salvation. Of course, the example of that par excellence is the Passover and the command to observe the Passover with the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. I think most of us are familiar with that. And that entire picture presented by Passover and the sacrifice of the Passover lamb was just a picture in advance of the true sacrifice for the remission of sins, which was the sacrifice of the true Passover lamb, which is Jesus who died on the cross on Passover for the remission of sins. So since the, all of the laws about the observance of Passover were figurative and foretelling the mystery of Christ, when the mystery of Christ became real and took effect, of course, those ceremonial observances, which were simply pictures in advance, came to an end because they were absorbed into the reality which they foretold and prefigured, so they then gave way to the rites and the sacraments of the new law which transmit and perpetuate that reality. I, I hope that is understandable. It's very, very deep, but I, 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 I hope nonetheless that it's uh, intelligible and that I did not um, garble it too badly. And then um, Maritain goes on to also explain that the, um, the, the, the purity which was required under the old law by man's observances coming out of his own abilities were actually unobtainable under the old law. In other words, man could not, 
by his own effort, be successful at being sufficiently uh, pure or holy as commanded by the old law. Now it is possible, and it's not possible through man's own efforts and abilities, but it's possible through, uh, through grace, which, if a man does not refuse it, makes him a new creature and therefore enables him to um, uh, reach a state of purity which was unavailable under his own, uh, under his own uh, as a result of his own abilities through his own power. Uh, that I did garble, so let me let me uh, go back to the words of Meriton there. The moral precepts which related to the effective conduct of each man here on earth, as that conduct should terminate in the true last end, have in no sense been abrogated, but their meaning has been profoundly changed. The illusion whereby it was believed that man could, by fulfilling these precepts, constitute himself into a state of justice, natural or legal, that illusion has evaporated. In other words, it was an illusion under the old law that man could, through his own ability, fulfill the precepts of purity, or of justice, I should say, and thereby place himself in a state of justice through his own efforts. That was an illusion, and now with the coming of Christ, that illusion has evaporated. On the other hand, under the new law, we know that it is by the free gift of God himself, of Christ on the cross, and by his blood, that we are able, that man is now able to achieve a state of sufficient justice uh, for salvation, but it's through grace, not through his own efforts. It's through grace, ransomed at a great price and without us having deserved it. Um, under the old law, man was bound to fulfill, but was unable by himself to fulfill, the moral precepts in their fullness. However, now, in the light of the true wisdom and perfection, which, when we achieve it, we owe to the power of God, through the working of grace, now, if man does not refuse it, it makes him a new creature, and he is now able to do what he had previously been unable to do. So, again, it's not that the old law has passed away. It's, it's that we are actually now able to succeed at what the old law truly was requiring of us through grace and through the merits of Jesus Christ and not through our own efforts, as the old law was kind of commanding us to do, but at the same time condemning us in some sense to a failure to be able to do it. I will continue. I hope without um, detracting from what Maritain is saying. And, and what Maritain is saying is really just what St. Paul is saying. We shall all be judged by our works, and the works of the new law are in themselves more difficult than those of the old law, in the sense that the former requires the purity of the internal act and of the hidden movements of the soul. Remember, the requirements of the old law only required external observance, but as Jesus made clear in the Sermon on the Mount, now it is our purity of heart which is to be judged as well. The new law requires the purity of the internal act and of the hidden movements of the soul. But it is not our works which save us. It is Christ crucified and the living faith received from the Father through him which incorporates us in him, the faith which, operating through charity, makes fruitful the works which are prescribed, makes them meritorious, and makes easy of accomplishment that which in itself would be more difficult. So it happens that love is the fullness of the law, and that we are saved by faith, not without works, but with charity and the works of charity, with charity from which proceed works, and without which works are nothing, with the works of charity which, being the active and living completion of our liberty, suffused with grace, are the very workings in us of the grace which has been given us. Let me see if I can um, illumine that a little bit. I do so in awe and trembling at the presumptuousness of doing so. But the merit of our works comes from not the works themselves, 
but the love with which we do them. And the reason for that is that God is love, and us doing them with love is actually God doing them through us. If they're done without love, they're not being done by God acting through us. They're being done by us in our human nature, so so to speak, and are therefore without merit. But when we allow God to work in us and through us and do these meritorious works with God's own love, then they become meritorious and then they become... um, I I hesitate to say this, but then they contribute to our salvation, not because we're performing works of the law, but because we are allowing God to work through us. Having said that, let me go back to Maritain's words and see if um, it becomes uh, clearer. So it happens that love is the fullness of the law, and that we are saved by faith, not without works, but with charity and the works of charity with charity from which proceed works, and without which works are nothing, with the works of charity which, being the active and living completion of our freedom, suffused with grace, are the very workings in us of the grace which has been given us. That man should thus always be held to the works of the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, and that he is nevertheless saved by faith, that he should be freed by faith from the regimen of the law, whose moral prescriptions he is nevertheless required to fulfill. That is the central problem which Paul had here to solve, and which in the course of centuries has put great religious thinkers to the test. Many of them have stumbled over the problem, because in this or that they parted company with Paul. Here is not only a problem to be solved by a correct arrangement of concepts, it is also a mystery to be penetrated ever more deeply by the intelligence of contemplation. Um, Let me point out an aside, which will perhaps already be evident to um, some of our listeners, that one of the forks in the road between Protestant theology and Catholic theology is exactly this interaction between faith, salvation, and works. And what um, Meriton is saying here is that there is no contradiction whatsoever uh, between the fact that we are saved by faith and yet works done in love are part of our salvation. However, it is a fairly deep mystery which will not be grasped by a surface, simply a surface reading of the words of Paul, of St. Paul, but the words and the meaning of St. Paul must be penetrated, must be understood more deeply through a kind of loving contemplation of them, a loving meditation of them. And then when they, the words of St. Paul and the logic of St. Paul bear fruit in its fullness, the apparent contradiction will go away. Um, uh, let me see if I can, how much further I can go before I run out of time. The third intuition which illuminates all Paul's thought is the intuition of the freedom of the sons of God. St. Paul is the great doctor of freedom. The feeling for freedom is rooted to the very marrow of his bones in him who was Saul, the most fervent of the Pharisees, whose heart was melted, and all barriers broken by the vision of Christ in glory. From then on, he has no boundaries. He is at the service of him whom he loves, and who has set him free. Who will separate him from the love of Christ? He lives, and it is not he. It is Christ who lives in him. He is weak, he is perpetually in anguish, yet he can do all things in him who gives him strength. He knows that all things work together for the good of those who love God. He knows that in love and through love, the creature becomes one spirit with God. He knows that freedom, in which we are established by faith, is only achieved and fulfilled, thanks to the cross, by the Spirit and by love. To say that charity is the bond of perfection is to say that it is the soul of freedom. 
A freedom without charity is a corpse of freedom. It disintegrates in the misery of created things. It rots away. The law, which is a tutor, educates us for freedom. As we follow the narrow paths of the moral law, so long as it is the love and the spirit of God which keeps us to them, we little by little learn to be free, free of evil and sin, and at last free of the law itself. Since then we fulfill the precepts, not through fear but through love, and as though willing them of ourselves, and from what is deepest in us, our will having been transformed into the will of him who we love. The saints are the only truly and fully autonomous men, for they have lost themselves in their uncreated principle who, being subsistent love itself, is subsistent freedom itself, in whom the law that rules creatures has its seat, and who is himself subject to no law. Whatever is the spirit of the Savior, there is freedom. Those who are led by the Spirit are no longer under the law, nor are they above the law. They have passed on into the other side of things. They are in the inner substance of the law, where the law is no longer seen from without as law, but from within as love. From there they look upon the order of the law imposes on things as the shadow of love itself. God is love, it is his shadow, which is the order of the law. So I don't have time to really expound that, but um, St. Paul and Maritain is explaining, says very beautifully, that that is the true fulfillment of the law when we as Christians obey the law, not because we are obeying the law, but because we are doing it out of love, out of the love that motivates us from within, which is Christ himself, who is the author of the law. And we're doing it out of our union with Christ, and so we are not observing the law from without, so to speak, but we are fulfilling the law out of our free will, out of our love, within us, for Christ, which is coming from Christ. And that is how we transcend the law and at the same time fulfill the law through our transformation in Christ. And I have come to the end of our hour, so I hope this has been good. I hope you join us again next week. You've been listening to Jesus the Promised Messiah on Radio Maria with your host, Roy Showman. Bye for now.